You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Happy Monday, everyone, and thank you for joining me for this special midday Monday edition of the Theology Mom podcast. Um, I am super excited to be here with all of you. And yes, I am live. So please uh, share this out and let people know. We we'll look forward to interacting with your questions later on in the stream. And um, I was alerted over the weekend by my friend Caleb, who was a messenger at last week's SBC meeting. He alerted me to an exchange that happened at one point in the meeting. And uh, I have so far I've watched about 11 hours of the SBC meetings just to see everything in context and, you know, what really transpired and all of that. So I've uh, this, uh, when I watched this one clip that, uh, my buddy Caleb pointed out to me, I thought, you know, I think, I think he's right. I think this would make a good conversation. And so, you know, I always appreciate the tips. Uh, some of you send me tips, some of them turn into shows. So this is an example of where a listener is becoming the producer. And um, I appreciate that because uh, always need good insider information to bring good content to y'all. So in just a few minutes here, I'm going to play the video clip from that moment at the SBC meeting last week. And the reason I think this is important is I think it offers kind of a little snapshot of a very important issue that many Christians are confused about um, and maybe can try to shed a little light on this issue. And, and that is the question, what role does our cultural bias play when we're interpreting the Bible? It's just sort of out there in the atmosphere now that, you know, questioning whether it's even possible to get correct interpretations of scripture, because we're all sort of trapped by our cultural bias. And this is an idea that really um, largely comes out of postmodern thought. And so I want to talk about this today. And I think that this clip that Caleb brought to my attention is a wonderful case study on the question, the concern, and why it matters. Because I really think that this is an issue that a lot of people wonder about. It's even being debated a lot in um, our seminaries, it's impacting our sermons. It's impacting how our future pastors are being taught to interpret the Bible. So how a person answers the question of the role of cultural bias and whether that can be overcome in our efforts to interpret the Bible, it's a very important question. Um, and so I've asked my friend, Dr. Joe Miller, to jump on this live stream with me and help me process this issue. Joe is a, a member of our Academic Advisory Council at the Center for Biblical Unity. He's a very valued and trusted friend of the ministry. So I want to say welcome back, Joe. 
Hey, it's good to be with you. I think actually, you say welcome back, but I don't think I've ever been on your stream, just you so. and I. Yeah. I was thinking about that. I think I know I've been on with you and Monique several times, and yeah. I think we've been on some other stuff, but this is the first time I'm here, so I feel yeah. I'm excited to be on with you today. Well, for, for the five people who might be listening to the podcast and, and don't know who the one and only Dr. Dr. Joe Miller is, oh, why don't you just give us like a little 30-second introduction of what you're up to? Yeah. So, well, I'll just give the most recent stuff that I'm up to and involved with. So uh, excited, of course, to always be involved with Center for Biblical Unity. Uh, I got some stuff in the works for you guys, and I'm writing an article for you guys. And so I'm excited to work on some of those things. Uh, I've been active with Ratio Christie for the last few years as a campus director, kind of shifting roles with them a little bit. I'm going to be sort of their worldview faculty lead, going to be taking on some roles of training faculty uh, across all kinds of universities in the U.S., maybe globally, we'll see in their missional prof program and trying to develop that. So trying to show faculty, how do you get your worldview into your course curriculum and, and to shape that? And then uh, the other big change recently, I just got hired on to Grand Canyon University uh, as the assistant uh, professor of Christian worldview and going to have a great opportunity starting this fall to uh, work with uh, freshmen coming in. It's a core course required of every student goes through there and I get to develop the curriculum, but also teach a bunch of uh, young minds about how do we use a Christian worldview to shape issues like we're talking about today. So those are just a few things that I've been up to and uh, excited to be uh, seeing, seeing it all come come together in some neat ways. Yeah. Well, I can say I, I, I knew you when. And we, uh, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't get too big because uh, then I won't be able to call you up and say, can you help me I, out? So That's not even possible. <laughs> uh, God reminds me every day uh, to be humble. So, uh, yeah. you know, I'm humbled all the time. So, yeah. Oh, I'm glad that we can have this conversation because, um, you know, uh, my friend uh, Jeff Davis is on the stream and he's asking the question, uh, is cultural bias similar to contextual theology. And we'll get into that, mm. Jeff. You know, I think that's a, it's a very good yeah. question. So, um, and Jeff's also congratulating. I actually have that in my notes is thinking about okay, good. Uh, that. Yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll yeah. touch on that for sure. And, uh, he's also congratulating you, Joe, on your, oh. all, all of your achievements. So thanks. That yeah. is wonderful. Okay, Joe. So I have like you been kind of, um, had a lot of experience over the last two and a half decades teaching a variety of classes, building curriculum. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that what I've, um, one of the things that I specialize in is teaching students how to interpret the Bible. That's, that's really like Mm. my heart and passion. And, um, one of the most basic principles of Bible interpretation, I just want to get us all grounded here is, that meaning comes from the original author. So our job as the interpreter is to try and do whatever we can to put ourselves um, to the side as we're able um, so that we can really drill down to the author's meaning, their meaning. Uh, We're trying to overcome Mm -hmm. our cultural bias. We're trying to overcome our lenses of how we see things to get into the author's culture, but arguably that's a tough, that's a tough job, especially Mm -hmm. when we're talking about like old Testament passages, there's a lot of cultural 
distance to bridge there between myself and the author. Maybe talk to us a little bit more about this process and what steps students are usually taught or historically have been taught to try to get yeah. to the author's meaning. Yeah, I think one of the key things that I've always emphasized with my students too, and, I, and I, I'm sort of, uh, you know, sort of picky on my language for this only because I try to be consistent to, to emphasize the difference. I'll always emphasize that there's one author and many writers. So God is the author of all scripture. And there's many writers of scripture. And I, and I try to be consistent in that distinction. Most people aren't. So I'm, it's not a critique of those who, you know, like say authors and authorial intent, but this is why I do think it's a, an important distinction because when we get to authorial intent, if we forget that the ultimate author is a God who transcends culture and transcends time, transcends uh, our, our individual worldviews, wherever place and time we exist, then we forget that the meaning itself is also transcendent. So although the individual writers wrote in a way that was relevant to their context, so we have to understand all these other elements of their background and, and those sort of things I'll mention in a second, uh, but understanding that the ultimate author transcends the human writers is the reason why we know that we can understand the meaning outside of our own cultural context and all, all of our own sort of biases. That's why we have hope that it matters and there's significance. And that, that distinction actually plays a role in what we're going to talk about today with what I think is going on with the, the Southern Baptists here in this particular uh, document as well. But the challenge is, I mean, you mentioned the culture gap, right? Um, our cultures are very different, uh, but there's a history gap just the age, the time difference. There's our, our lack of understanding of the historical context in addition to the cultural uh, differences that are there. There's a geography gap. Sometimes there, we just don't understand certain phrases uh, you know, that make sense only if you understand the geography of the time and place that's going on there. Uh, there's what I call a miracle gap. Um, and, and I think that's something like we see these uh, amazing things happening. So well, I've never seen them in my life. Like, how can that be true? Uh, I think there's a miracle of the inspiration itself that goes back to that author writer distinction that I make. So there's a gap there that often we have to overcome based on our experience versus what the, the Bible is saying happened. And then there's a genre gap, you know, the, the type of literature, whether it's poetry, but Hebrew poetry, for example, isn't the same as, you know, poetry you'd write today. It's not Dr. Seuss. It's a different kind of language poetry. And then there's a language gap, the actual words, the grammar and the structure that are there too. So those are all the gaps that we face in understanding that. And then hermeneutics says, hey, how can I overcome these gaps to understand, as you said, right, said that transcendent, that ultimate meaning that is embedded in the text? That's really good because what we really want to emphasize is that while meaning comes from, you know, the author, there's also the, the meaning itself is transcendent and it mm -hmm. is something that we are trying to discover as the mm -hmm. reader. So the reader doesn't shape the meaning rather mm -hmm. we're trying to discover this, this transcendent idea that was in the author's mind. And, you know, just as an everyday example that I like to use with students is that um, all of us, you know, in practical, in the real world, believe in that meaning comes from the author. I mean, any, any married person who has mm -hmm. had an argument with their spouse and they've said the words, 
that's not what I mean. <laughs> you don't understand what I'm saying. They're, they're saying, you know, we have to get to the intent and, and that's how we discover, you know, what's, what's really happening mm -hmm. in the conversation. So I think that understanding our goal at the beginning, that there is a transcendent meaning is going to be a helpful principle as we unfold this conversation. Okay, with that, I'm going to um, have Bob play this clip from last week at the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, there's gonna, you're going to see uh, what's called a messenger. He's a pastor. He's going to stand up, and he has a little bit of an, a long introduction, and then he asks his question to one of the presidents of one of the uh, Southern Baptist seminaries. So this was in the larger section of all the reports from the five, I think there were five major Southern Baptist seminaries. So the president would stand up and give a report is about 10 minutes. And then there was a time for open mic Q and a. So this is a question uh, that came during that open mic time. All right, Bob, go ahead and play. Recognize microphone two a for a question. Hello, my name is Glenn LaRue. I am the pastor of University Baptist Church in Middletown, Ohio. I am a two-time graduate of Southern Seminary uh, and am so thankful to the Lord for the seminary education I received there from 2002 to 2011. Uh, and this prefaces my question to you. Uh, we had instilled in us, in my education, the value of historical grammatical exegesis of the scriptures for arriving at the author's original intent to ground interpretation and application of the scriptures for both doctrine and preaching. And I'm among one of those as much as, and I want you to hear my heart on this, I love our seminaries, I respect our presidents, I, I actually did studies with one of your colleagues on the stage with you. I, I, I love the gospel and I love uh, who we are as Baptists, but I'm among one of those who am concerned about drift in our seminaries with regard to all the racial things and stuff like that, that of course last year's convention had in plenty and has not been talked about very much at this year's convention. And so the reason I'm, I'm talking to you is because Gateway had a report on June 1st, 2021 called Addressing Racism and Racial Issues Throughout the Curriculum at Gateway Seminary, a sampling of faculty practices. And in this report, it explicitly kind of pulls the curtain back at how the different disciplines infuse issues of race and racism across the board. Now, right off the bat, that's a very troubling thing for me, that all these disciplines have to have racism infused into them. But the thing that, for me, is a red flag, and I would really like for everyone in this room to listen very carefully to, is the section on hermeneutics. And the reason is because all doctrinal error starts with undercutting how we interpret the scripture. My brother, with all due respect, would you get to your question, please? So it, it reads like this. We explain and affirm the value of historical grammatical methodology, 
but also point out it is not the only method of biblical interpretation. We affirm it communicates best to Western modernist evangelicals, which I take as code for white people. We affirm how other cultures, races, ethnicities have much to offer in using this and other methods for interpreting the Bible. And then here's the last statement. My hermeneutic signature assignment requires students to examine a text from two cultural, racial, ethnic viewpoints other than their own. So my question for you is, based on my concern, that this is kicking the door wide open for subjective interpretations of the scripture that down the line a few years will be leading to all kinds of perversions. And so my question for you is, do you believe that historical grammatical exegesis is the right way to interpret the Bible or the white way to interpret the Bible? And if, if you believe it is the right way, how can you have this approach to hermeneutics happening at your institution? And if you believe it is the white way, how can this convention of churches and even your colleagues be content with that? Thank you for your question. Dr. Orge? The answer is it is the right way. The document you're referring to is an expression of what faculty try to do to teach from the perspective you're describing while acknowledging a lot of other influences that students bring to the classroom that must be confronted, dealt with in dialogue fashion. So the document that you're referring to was an attempt to say, here's the way we try to do what you just suggested, teach from the perspective you've uh, outlined, but re recognize that we're dealing with teaching students who come with a lot of different kinds of perspectives and varieties and asking them to analyze those and comparatively look at them in light of what you suggested, we think is good education, not advocation for what you said. The second thing is you said that we use the word infuse. I don't think that's the proper word to use. I think it's more a word where we're acknowledging that this is all going on in the interpretive world and we're trying to address it in our curriculum, not so much advocate for it. All right, very good. Now, um, the reason I played the whole clip, I know it was a little long, is I don't want to have any accusations of taking things out of context or we were highly selective, so we played the whole thing. That is the whole thing. Um, if you want to watch all 11 hours, you can do that. <laughs> it's available, <laughs> but that is the clip. Okay. So Joe, um, let's get into this here. First, let's kind of summarize this messenger's concern. Um, what do you think is prompting his question? Well, I, you know, I, I mean, he's pretty clear. I mean, what he believes is his concern is long-term this erodes the ability to say that we've rightly un interpreted and understood the word of God, and therefore it ends up in dividing the church uh, and, and in our dividing the church to the point where our theology is predicated on our racial or ethnic backgrounds. And then, you know, then we end up just not as one church with one understanding and one meaning in the text, but multiple churches with multiple meanings. And I, I think he sees this as devolving into this very, just like we see society so bulk balkanized and tribalized into small little groups that are always battling. I think he, his concern is that this will happen in the church if we undermine 
the uh, the place of hermeneutics or say that somehow that there's a a white or a black or an Asian hermeneutic right. uh, that is involved. I think this is the biggest concern. Yeah, and I think that um, thinking about how that plays out in real life is you might hear things like, you know, there's a white interpretation of the Bible or there's a black, um, you know, there's black theology. And so when you hear those terms, that's kind of, his question is, that's the long-term, you know, where this roads tends to go when we interpret things according to people's social location, such Mm -hmm. as feminist hermeneutics or queer hermeneutics, you know, and these are emerging disciplines. And so you're, you're reading the text not to get necessarily to the author's meaning, but rather putting on the the, the glasses or the lenses of our modern perspective, our social location, and then reading those scriptures through that. So that's kind of his concern. Um, Let's look at the document that the messenger quotes. I I found it. The internet's a wonderful place. So Bob is going to put that on the screen for us. Now, people can just Google this title up here, Addressing Racism and Racial Issues Throughout the Curriculum at Gateway Seminary. This came out uh, last June, so about a year ago, 2021. So I've... After reading through this, I feel like I could do a whole live stream just on this document because there's several errors, uh, biblical errors in it, but I'm not going to go into that. So we're just going to scroll to the section on hermeneutics. And so I'm going to have Bob scroll up there to find that section. All right. So let's start with, we devote time illustrating how humans view their world through their own lenses and that hermeneutics over the last 2,500 years illustrates this among varieties ethnicities of Christians and Jews, including racial, ethnic, and cultural viewpoints. That's kind of an interesting statement there. Um, We explain and affirm the value of the historical grammatical methodology, but also point out it is not the only method of biblical interpretation. So, Joe, what do you make of that, that first sentence there, of that paragraph? Yeah. You know, I read that several times and it didn't, you know, I thought at first, you know, not too much of it, but as I read the whole document and reread it, I think that there's something kind of happening there that's at least worth noting. And I don't know if it's intentional or if it's just the way they structured this, but it does certainly reveal, I think, what the the writers of this are thinking. So the idea that, um, you know, that, historical grammatical interpret methodology is not the only method is just it's true on its face. Obviously there's a lot of methods to interpret the scripture. So they're just pointing out something that's obviously true. Uh, but that's not the same. The implication of this though, is seems to be that all hermeneutics are equally valid. Then they don't, they just say, it's just one of many, right? They're not, they're not making a declaration that it has a, uh, is a uh, equal, you know, the, that it's, it's somehow superior. separate from these others or yeah. superior to others. It's sort of like what we see in the, in the secular world where we assume that, you know, Oh, we're multicultural. The assumption is that the morals and ethics that come with every culture are all have equal value. So we have no way of knowing which are the right values or the wrong values within a culture because we're multi multicultural. Right. And I think that's what they kind of imply here is that, yes, yeah, sure. The biblical hermeneutics is, is, you know, the historical grammatical way of doing it is one way, but it's not the only way. 
but they just, the, the impression is they're all, all of equal value as long as any particular group finds them valuable, I guess. Um, and yeah, that's well, the sort of second implicit part of that is, is that any given hermeneutic is, is really valuable only for a specific racial or ethnic group. It leaves open this idea that it's valuable, but only because you come from, so every ethnic or racial group, then because all of those are equal, whatever hermeneutic they come up with is, is valid for their group, but not necessarily for the other group. And I think that's where the foundation starts for that uh, equivocation of terms and just kind of muddying the waters. Yeah. And I think that um, your hypothesis of what this means is reinforced in the very next sentence. It says, you know, yeah. we, we affirm it communicates best in other, it being the mm -hmm. historical grammatical methodology of interpreting the Bible, it communicates best to Western modernist evangelicals. To me, they're really tipping their hand there in that they're, they're saying, you know, in this tribe, we tend to use yeah. this method. Um, is that how you're reading that as well? Yeah, they have all these qualifiers there, Western. So, which in the language of the day, and this is where, this is where I'll say this, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they believe that they are, they're doing their best to reinforce that later on, they say that, you know, the historic, this grammatical historical method is the best method or whatever. I, I believe they, I think they're reinforcing that. But I, I think what I see in this document, if I'm being as generous as I can in reading it, is I think what you have is people who don't understand, um, the language that they're using, because, you know, mm -hmm. to be a faculty member, usually at this level, you have a very focused educational background. You've studied only old Testament. So there's an old Testament section of this, or there's somebody doing hermeneutics that has studied like within a very specific discipline. So I think what you have is people who are outside of their academic discipline, trying to integrate thoughts that they don't fully comprehend, to be honest. Um, and, and I think that's what I see here is, is happening. Because if, if you look at the words like Western modernist evangelicals, a lot of those are code in the language for white. Uh, and, and that's why I think that messenger's question comes out the way it does is because now I don't know if they mean it that way, but that's the way many would read it. Again, if we're talking about cultural bias or racial bias or those, you know, how do we all perceive things? They've got to understand the words they use have uh, are being interpreted a certain way. Uh, and so if they're going to use that language, they need to be aware that what they're really saying there to many readers would be, we affirm that it communicates best to white Christians. Yeah. Uh, of a certain kind, not even all of those, you know, specifically evangelical. So I think that's the, yeah. Uh, it, the problem is it turns hermeneutics then into really this, a tool of application, not of interpretation. And that's what they're really doing is they're saying hermeneutics is primarily to interpret a, is, is a, is for the purpose of applying something, not for really genuinely interpreting or understanding the, the authorial intent. Uh, and so they change almost what the purpose of hermeneutics is in this, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then we go right to the next sentence. They, they say, you know, we affirm cause they're, they're doing these kind of affirmation statements mm -hmm. here. We affirm how other cultures, races, ethnicities have much to offer in using this, the grammatical historical method, and other methods for interpreting the Bible. My mm -hmm. signature, and I, I'm assuming this was written by the hermeneutics chair um, yeah. at, at Gateway, 
my hermeneutics signature assignment requires students to examine a text from two cultural, racial, ethnic viewpoints other than their own. So it seems that, I mean, I would really want to hear him unpack, you know, what are these other methods for interpreting the Bible that you think could also have validity possibly, or what would be the purpose of this assignment uh, in looking at the the scripture Mm -hmm. through these other viewpoints is it. And so let's unpack, you know, some possibilities there of what that's talking about. Sure. Well, to, to unpack that too, go, going back that one sentence, just where he said we affirm, a, you know, this hermeneutical method, the historical medical communicates best. So look what happens there, and this is what why this next sentence where you're pointing out has a difference. He's saying that hermeneutics communicates to us something. In other words, we're choosing a method that we, from our cultural racial bias means something to us, but hermeneutics doesn't communicate anything to us. Hermeneutics is not a worldview lens. They're treating hermeneutics as if it's a lens of a worldview. And so I'm picking the worldview lens that suits my preferences or my social location, you know, yes, my my social location, my gender, my ethnicity, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah. So, but hermeneutics is designed to be a method of discerning biblical meaning outside of the constraints of my worldview. But they have shifted hermeneutics into just another worldview lens. So, in other words, hermeneutics now is no longer capable of helping me see outside my worldview lens, my race, ethnicity, all those things. It's just another, it's just the tool that speaks best to me within my lens. So what I, what I think happens here is that we all become trapped within our particular worldview, shaped by our gender, our sex, our, gen, our, our race, all those sort of things. And now we're just sort of, it becomes a, almost a, a way of just circular reasoning. It's like, here's, the, here's what I... Here's the, the black now. perspective. Here's the queer yeah. perspective. Here's the feminist perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what's happening in this thing. Uh, it's, it's, you see this within, we talked about contextual theology. You see it in a secular world, uh, about ideas of what come to came to my mind actually is the concept of colonialism or anti-colonialism or decolonization as it's often referred to, uh, in the secular literature. Uh, and I think that's essentially, he's not using those words here, but they're describing these sort of decolonization concepts, you know, decolonize the text, decolonize my hermeneutics, decolonize the language. And for those not familiar, um, you know, just the whole idea is that, you know, in the 19th, 20th century, decolonization was about a political self-determination. So when Britain took over uh, India, right, they were a British colony, right? Well, we said we want to have our own political self-determination. So decolonization meant political self-determination uh, of its own, own people groups. In the 21st century now, what that means, it's about epistemic self-determination of occupied truths. Uh, 
So now epistemically, I need to find, I need to be able to find my, my way of knowing needs to be taken out of a Western way. My way of knowing has to be taken out of a white way. It has, there's such a way of knowing based on my race or ethnicity or gender or sex. And so what I think unintentionally or intentionally, I don't know. I'm assuming it's unintentional because I know most people that I know in these fields don't really understand fields outside their own as well as they do. They probably should. Um, so that, that's me trying to be generous on this. But I think they're treating it like a 21st century concept where hermeneutics is sort of, we're trying to decolonize hermeneutics. Uh, it's, yes. it's infused with Western knowledge, which is, of course, the instrument of oppression. Western knowledge is what is keeping these indigenous people groups or these other racial groups from understanding the meaning within their cultural context. So that's why they say when it's a Western way and all these, you get into all this language that they're using, you realize it's just running parallel with these other movements in a secular culture. I don't know if they just know it because, uh, or if they understand what the, they're doing or if they just think that's the the way they have to speak now to um, appeal to the culture. I, I don't, I can't speak yeah. to their motive on that, but. And I, I think in the, the, the third paragraph there, I, I think that most of those propositions we would essentially agree with. And it's making a point that you made earlier mm-hmm. that um, I emphasize that although the meaning of the passage of the Bible is timeless. Okay. I think we would agree with that. The application of biblical teaching varies with the needs of individuals, cultures, and historical eras. So they're yeah. making the d- differentiation between between getting to the author's meeting, that's the interpretation versus the application. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we want to aim for the correct yeah. interpretation of scripture, but we recognize that can have various applications mm-hmm. for different cultures. And I don't think we would disagree with that. I teach how to determine a culturally relevant application of a teaching of scripture. Uh, that's what we used to call the old fashioned version of contextual theology. Uh, you know, now that term has kind of shifted in meaning, but when I was in seminary 30 years ago, that's what that was. It was mm-hmm. understanding the meaning of the text first and then figuring out how does it apply to these different yeah. cultures. Um, we have several discussions about how to apply the Bible in different cultural contexts. Students become more aware of how their own cultural biases and presuppositions color the reading of scripture. Again, I think that it's possible. Like if, if we have no tools and no, no thought, no self insight, yeah. yes, our cultural bias can distort our views of scripture but that's where the historical grammatical method yeah. is such a valuable exactly tool right. to help us overcome that. Because it gets us outside of yeah. our isolated cultural context. And I've taught this to Old Testament students when I teach my Old Testament ideas. They're like, hey, I know this sounds horrible. This is what happens here. This sounds terrible, doesn't it? They're like, yeah, this is horrible. It's like, but we're reading it through your cultural lens. You got to look at through their cultural lens to understand what's happening in this passage. And that's what historical grammatical method ultimately does. But notice what they did here. Um, and that last little thing says again, although the meaning of the passage of the Bible is timeless. Okay. The, the application of biblical teaching varies with needs of individuals, cultures, and historical errors. That's true. 
But hermeneutics is the way we get from that meaning to Mm -hmm. the application. This is the hermeneutics section. Notice he doesn't, that that sentence has no transition thought. It has no mention of how hermeneutics gets us from meaning to that. Because what they've already said is that hermeneutics itself is a cultural method. It's a racial method. It's a gender method of whatever. So it's, so here's the thing is, but if, so if the meaning is timeless, but our hermeneutics are determined by race or ethnicity, how then can we claim to know this timeless transcultural transracial meaning? We have no methodology to read that gets at that meaning. So what all they've done is really say is that there's no hermeneutic to help us understand the transcultural timeless transracial meaning because all hermeneutics is about culture. You read it with your cultural lens. So they're affirming there's this transcendent ultimate meaning, but what they've done is say we have no actual transracial, transcultural way of reading the text. That so is, then we're left with that's all a very powerful. That's a very powerful insight. Yes. Right? Yeah. Isn't that what he did? Yeah. So then, so our position would say, yes, that meaning, the author's meaning is discoverable hermeneutics is the tool that we use to get there. But if we make hermeneutics itself subjective or relative, exactly. Then our, our tool is, is bent from the beginning. And so how do we make a straight line at that point? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. There's a couple quotes. Let me throw in, I I don't know about our time here, but let me just throw a couple quotes. Okay. Because I think this will help people understand again. I, I want to be as generous as I can because I'm reading a document. I've heard some statements. I've talked to these people, these direct authors. And so, uh, you know, I don't know their background specifically. I haven't investigated all of them. I want to be as generous as I can in my critique. And, and to be honest, the most generous I can be is that I don't think they understand the language they're using. Uh, I think they're trying to, to bring two worlds together. One where there's this, the text has a transcendent meaning, hermeneutics is the right way to do it, but now we're getting all this gendered and racial language and okay, how do I accommodate that? And everyone has a different cultural racial lens. And I don't think they're making that transition well in a, in a way that uh, doesn't undermine those first declarations. So I don't think it's intentional. I just think it's um, one based off of a lack of uh, understanding of things outside of their discipline. So uh, I just want to reemphasize that. But here's a couple yeah. quotes to go back. So first one, uh, James Cone uh, from A Black Liberation, uh, A Black Theology of Liberation. Now he says this uh, in, his, in his book. And he would be, first of all, he would be an example though of somebody that has a different hermeneutical lens. Yes. So that's he's the a, importance of this, of this approach. Exactly. He's, yeah. he's arguing for this, this racial lens is the only okay. way to understand it. And it's very contextualized theology in the sense of our context determines meaning, not our context shades, our understanding or misunderstanding of the text, but context actually determines meaning. Got it. Right. So here's what he says. Theology is contextual language. That is defined by the human situation that gives birth to it. Now that's okay. I, I, I don't have problems so far. Our theology does. It can be shaped. Now doctrine, biblical doctrine, is different. The declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, born of the Virgin, those are biblical doctrines. 
uh, if we have a theology that tries to explain how the Holy Spirit could have caused conception and we have a, oh, here's what scientifically, okay, now we're going to do our, our, our theological explanation of a biblical doctrine. And sure, those can be shaped. Don't totally disagree with what he's saying there. I think that's true. But he does essentially what I see happening in this quote, which is why I think it's important. So he goes, no one can write theology for all times, all places, all persons. Now we're going to get it off the rails a little bit. Therefore, when one reads a theological textbook, it is important to note the year of its publication, the audience for whom it was written, and the issues of the author that they were compelled to address. So he's saying historical grammatical is the way we understand authorial intent. But no meaning itself can transcend that context. That's what he's saying. And this is, I think, what's ultimately happening is this quote is that they're saying, yes, the Bible transcends, but they're using a methodology that constrains the meaning so that we're isolated from that transcendent meaning. We can't get to that meaning because we're so bound by our own cultural lens. And that's ultimately where Cohn goes with his ideas is that, therefore, what it meant to the Jews doesn't really matter at the time of, let's say, the New Testament when they were reading it, because that's not what it means to somebody in the modern context. So we determine the meaning based on our cultural context, not just the application. And I think that's where this document uh directs us toward it doesn't say that i mean it says that that's not the goal but i but i think what happens is it takes us down that road where that's beyond uh, you know we're going to be we're going to isolate ourselves from that ultimate transcendent meaning does that first quote make sense to you where i'm going with that yeah no it's a great example of of you know what we're talking about and kind of when you get a little further down the road if if this all plays out this this is where you end up yeah. Yeah. If I were to rephrase his thing and put it as, so instead of theology, say, if I said hermeneutics is cultural language or mm-hmm. a cultural tool that is defined by the human situation that gives birth to it. That's exactly what they're doing in this document. But, but I, just, hear, I hear, uh, I'm a, I hear, I like to call them big Eva, big evangelical voices. I hear them say things like this all the time yes. that, that we are, you know, the products of our culture, we're bound by our culture, everybody brings their biases to the text. So therefore, you know, it's almost like you can't arbitrate um, which interpretations are more correct than any others, because you just got your interpretation as a result of your social location as a white person, or as a black or brown person, this is going to lead to massive confusion in our churches Mm -hmm. for people in the pews. If this is how our pastors start to get trained. Yes. Yes. And I don't think they realize it's kind of, many don't, some do, some don't. I think again, a lot of academics because of their, their discipline, so discipline focused, they're just taking what somebody else says at sort of like the language and trying to incorporate the language. Oh, this makes sense with what I've always said, but they don't realize that they're actually in conflict uh, with what they're saying. There's another quote I want to throw out here, because this is a gal who's also a, uh, would fall in the James Cone tradition. I, when I read her book, her name is Mitzi J. Smith. Now she's an important person. She's no random person. She wrote a book called uh, uh, Womanist Sass and Talk and talk back. So basically she's, if you especially read the intro to her book, she's very much cone like and taking cone stuff and she's applying it to a hermeneutical method, which is why she's really interesting. Cause cone talked on a sociological theological me- level. 
uh, Dr. Mitzi J. Smith is talking at a hermeneutical level. So she's now saying how she takes four key passages and reinterprets them with this new hermeneutic. And here's what she says. The womanist. The womanist. A womanist. Womanist black. Yes, a black womanist. Yeah, so a womanist, just if that might be a new term for some people, womanist theology, womanist lens tends to be, you know, black women. And if it's, so it's speaking from that social location. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's her language she uses. She says this, I read sacred texts from and with my locatedness. Think cultural context. And uh, think uh, ethnicity, race, gender, all those things. Uh, and my embodiment as an African-American female biblical scholar, I read from my position and perspective in front of the text. So the text serves the locatedness. Locatedness becomes the authority through which we interpret the text, the meaning. So in her case, and she gets, she's pretty clear on this, like the parable of the 10 virgins that are waiting there with the lamp oil. They basically, she basically says, look, what's clearly happening is Matthew is parroting the, uh, the, uh, the slave owner oppression matrix as the framework for understanding uh, the gospel. So the gospel becomes the uh, aligned with the oppression, oppressor oppression matrix. And this is reinforced by Matthew because he's a man of his culture and time. So we have to take that out of the text to find the, the, the cultural meaning that we have that Matthew couldn't see past his own cultural bias and lens. So when she's saying authorial intent, she would say Matthew had his authorial intent, which was a guy who couldn't see past his own oppression matrix of his day and the, all that stuff. We have to unpack that. That's, that's exactly how she interprets that, that parable. So the five virgins who were prepared, she says, those are actually the, um, in our, in our modern context, they are, they have adopted the oppression framework as well. They, they have the master's definition of being prepared. They're on demand. They're on call for the master. They're ready to serve at the master's discretion, whatever standard he changed to they're like snap too but the five virgins who are not prepared they're actually the ones that we need to celebrate because they are going against the oppressor oppression matrix they're doing it by their own standard and their own ethic and she goes on to this whole interpretive methodology and this is what what is meant for these people who are looking at this approach so when i look at this document the sbc folks is i guarantee i would almost guarantee as much as I can, none of these, none of these Hermes guys have read uh, Dr. Smith's, uh, Missy Smith's, uh, you know, book on women as sass, but they're using her language because they think that that will make them responsive to this cultural need. But what it's going to do is, as you pointed out, undermine this idea that we can transcend our cultural bias and understand the real meaning, which also transcends our cultural bias, because there's no no actual methodology to overcome our perspective. Matter of fact, overcoming our perspective isn't even the goal because every cultural perspective has equal value, therefore equal meaning, equal sourcing. That's actually valuable. So when you speak about overcoming cultural bias, that's actually a part of that oppression, you know, the white Western idea that that's even bad. Uh, you know, I think ultimately it pushes towards this idea that, oh, cultural, cultural perspective is good because that's where we get it to real meaning. That is a great example because that could be an, uh, a source that a student could use in their interpretive project. 
that's yeah. described in this document. And hopefully I'm going to, I'm going to give the professor who wrote this, you know, the benefit of the doubt that somewhere in their syllabus instructions, it says, you know, evaluate the accuracy of, you know, the, the hermeneutics. It's not yeah. just go out and find James Cone's approach to X, Y, Z passage. And that is somehow equally valid with, you know, looking up Vern Poitras's perspective on the passage or something, you know, like I'm, I'm going to give the professor the benefit of the doubt that in the syllabus, yeah, I hope he instructs, there. he instructs students to have an evaluative um, aspect yeah. of the assignment, uh, evaluating the accuracy, but this mm -hmm. language in this document, I can understand the messenger's confusion exactly. and why he was wanting clarity about it. So let's, we're going to wrap up here, but let's say I'm a seminary student and I'm sitting in a class mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm sitting in my hermeneutics class. What is the kind of language that I might mm -hmm. hear in that class that is going to tell me how my professor is instructing me to interpret mm. the scripture. Yeah. So I think what you'll start to see is look for language that emphasizes perspective and lens over authority and, uh, you know, the authority of the text. The words like the text has authority or the text has meaning that transcends or language like that. Um, you know, or if responses to your, hey, this is what the text is. Well, that's your cultural lens. What about somebody else? And if they start pushing back on certain things, you realize everything becomes a cultural lens. Because you got to understand, there's a right place for that. Yes, we all have cultural bias. No one's arguing against that. But the question is, does cultural bias mean that the text itself has no trans transracial transcultural transpolitical transgender whatever not that word yeah that one doesn't work terrible uh meaning right yeah and and so i think those i think actually this document has a lot of those buzzwords in it uh it just does a terrible job of of clarifying uh how these ideas are being reconciled it makes it's affirming multiple things that are irreconcilable on their face of how they've done it in this document, if that makes sense. So maybe they can be, uh, maybe there's clarifying comments that could be done, uh, but I don't see them in this document. But if students were to read this and some of the language there, I think looking at those words uh, that they use there, the language of culture and context and you know contextual theology, those sort of things, yeah. I think they'd start to say, okay, red flags, let me start to listen now. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's look at a few comments here coming in on YouTube. Um, Helen says she appreciates the fair, discreet discussion that we're giving. So we're, we're aiming for that, Helen. So thank you for the feedback that it's coming across that way. Also gives a shout out to my buddy Caleb for his diligence in bringing this to my attention. Um, um, our friend Jeff Davis is asking, it seems that this thinking leads to a your truth versus my truth conversation without any transcendent authority to be mm -hmm. the final arbiter of truth are truth claims available for all people in all time. Yeah, that's actually a great question. Matter of fact, this uh, July 8th, I'm actually doing a talk 
up at uh, the Mars Hill Forum at Northwest Calvary Chapel on this very topic. What do you accept as truth? And I think you're right. Ultimately, what happens is, I'll, I'll just, the short version is this. I think if you take this document at its face value, what you have is there's an acknowledgement that there is a transcendent truth, but we have no way to access it. You end up with the very Kantian sort of divide between what, what we experience and what exists as truth. So what exists as truth is out there, what we experience as truth, uh, but we have no way to bridge that gap. Uh, and I, and I fear that what, what they end up with in, in this is that, uh, that ultimate divide. Yeah. Well, thank you, Joe, for helping us process this. I think, um, you did a really great job in, in helping us, um, get, just have some things to think about and having some, some words to, to be on the alert for when we hear these things come up, when our pastors maybe say these types of things that, that these can be red flags and that it's not always like just purely saying that the, the, the phrase, you know, that we have cultural bias that can be true. Um, that's not a red flag necessarily for this type of ideology, but we have to listen carefully to see like, all right, how are they thinking about that cultural bias? Are we just enslaved to it? Um, or are there ways and tools to help us overcome it and bridge those cultural gaps? Uh, I'm going to give you the final word and we'll close out. Yeah. I just, you know, everybody just be really diligent. Um, our churches have not done us any real favors over the past decades in helping us uh, be biblically literate in, in our approach to understanding these things. And then therefore our hermeneutics, if we're not biblically literate, we're not going to understand hermeneutically how to understand the message. So uh, can I give a shout out to a friend's book on this? Would that be cool? Definitely. Definitely. So I'm just reviewing a book. I actually have a review coming out on this. There's a book called uh, a primer on biblical literacy. Let's see if I can make it not blurry. No, it's, I don't know. My camera face. has a blurry thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, there we go. Uh, there we are. Uh, right in front uh, of your face. There you go. There you go. All right, there we are. Look at me. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a primer on biblical literacy. It's by my friend, uh, Dr. Corey Marsh. Uh, it, it's uh, it's out on Amazon right now. Um, but it's it's a real short, you know, under 100, around 100-ish, 120 pages, real small. But it'll give a good framework for, for some, understanding some of these things uh, at, at, a, at a level that if you haven't gone to seminary or whatever, you'll still understand what's going on, but give you some depth to that. So I'd encourage you just really dig in yourself. Don't lean into, you know, don't trust that you've learned something just because you go to church and hear these things. Start to educate yourself on these things because you're going to have to. Yeah. Uh, it's going to get rough and um, you need to be prepared. So books like that, I, I know there's a lot of other great ones out there as well, but that's a good starting point for you guys if you're interested. Well, thanks, Joe. I really appreciate your time and um, just helping us dig into this. I want to encourage everyone to go check out Joe Miller's work at, uh, what's your website? Cultural. So you can do the Center for Cultural Apologetics.org. Or morethancake.org. Either one of those yeah. will get you to both. All you can check stuff. out his blog posts and podcasts and just the wealth of information he has. Pray for Joe as he's transitioning into his new position and the influence that he will have at Grand Canyon University. Pray for the students that he'll encounter and disciple there and really becoming, um, you know, uh, an important voice. Uh, moving forward, a voice of influence. So we're grateful for you, Joe. Thank you so much. And Thanks, we sister. will see everyone very soon. Good day and God bless. Mm -hmm.
Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.